Hello and welcome to That Science, the podcast exploring the meaning of science today. I'm Amelia Doran and this is What's Science. On our last episode of What's Science, we discussed animal testing and the ethical issues surrounding it, but also pre-clinical trials and the role of animal testing within them. Following on from that, today's episode focuses on clinical trials. What are they? How do they run? And how can we improve them? Our guest is Marcia Schofield, a chronic pain specialist doctor who has acted as principal investigator in a number of trials. Marcia is also the mother of my favourite podcast co-host, the one and only Susan O'Flynn, so I'm especially excited to chat to her. Our discussion does include some mentions of illness, including HIV and AIDS, and death. Here's the wonderful Marcia. Hi, it's really wonderful to meet you. Um, I've been really excited about this all week. (laughs) I've been a little anxious. (laughs) Absolutely no need. Thank you so much for for telling to us. Do you want to start um, just by telling us a bit about you, what you do now? Okay, so I have had a rather unusual route into medicine. I'm a doctor. I qualified in 1997. And ever since I qualified, I have been pretty much working in the field of Well, it started out in anesthesia and intensive care, but then I got interested in doing chronic pain and palliative care while I was doing my intensive care training. And I actually went sideways and then developed that into doing full-time pain. So I'm one of the few senior doctors in the UK who does pain full-time. Most people combine pain with anesthesia or something like neurosurgery or neurology or psychiatry or rheumatology, but I was came from an anesthetics background. Before that, I had a very unusual career. (laughs) I was in the music business for about 15 years. So I was a rock star and I was on tour with bands and making records and doing John Peel sessions. And I kind of got interested in activism in the early 80s when my friends started coming down with what we then called queer cancer. And that was before people understood what AIDS was. And all we knew was that lots of our friends were getting sick and getting strange skin conditions called Kaposi's sarcoma and odd pneumonias that didn't respond to treatment. And people were very frightened and our friends were dying alone in hospital wards, not being fed or eating off disposable dishes. And the treatment was horrific. And um, we were sort of driven to try to do something about finding effective treatments. And so we started off with gay men's health crisis, which then came to be known as ACT UP. And the early demonstrations were things like we performed a die-in on the steps of City Hall in the early 80s. And it was really just to try to call attention to an underserved group who weren't benefiting from medical research. And it really was a crisis because nobody knew what was going on and nobody knew how to stop it and nobody knew what was causing it. But it seemed to be affecting gay men, people with quote-unquote alternative lifestyles who pretty much got a rough deal anyway from the traditional medical establishment. So it seemed important that one of us, and I say us because I identified with that group at the time, that one of us could actually go on to the other side and work from the inside. So my friends kind of said, well, you know, you're probably only one of us who could do a medical degree. So So I was sort of, you know, thrust here, you off you go. (laughs) You go and train to be a doctor. I didn't realize it would mean I would have to go back and do A-levels. So at the age of 30, I went back to Hackney College of Further Education and did my A-levels, which was 
challenging to say the least. And when my instructor said to me, well, you know, what do you want to do with these A-levels? And I said, I want to study medicine. He sort of looked at me like I had two heads. And then he said, uh, where do you want to study medicine? And being an American immigrant who knew nothing about the British education system, I said, well, I guess either Oxford or Cambridge. And Cambridge is a bit closer to Finsbury Park, so I suppose I'll apply to Cambridge. I think I might have been the only student from Hackney College of Further Education to ever go to Oxbridge, but I was definitely the diversity candidate, I think. <laughs> I mean, I think that's amazing. And coming from that activism, it's a really nice way to be able to do something in a way rather than I think sometimes when, when I participate in protests and demonstrations and stuff, you don't feel super powerful. And I think coming into the establishment is is amazing. And it must have been really challenging as well. Yeah, I didn't look like everyone else who was studying medicine. I still don't look like everyone else who practices medicine. And it was really difficult. It was a sort of bit of a survivor's guilt because, you know, here I had gone down this road and passed my A-levels and got into medical school. And at that stage, my friends were still dying. So it was, you know, it's a sort of combination of trying to be accepted within this new chosen career that you've worked really hard to get into, but also being very aware that you're coming at it from a completely different angle that everyone else who's come into it has, you know, they've had very stable backgrounds, you know, to get into medicine, you've got to come from a pretty stable environment. You've got to study hard. You've got to get good grades. I'm not sure that that's the best way to choose future doctors. <laughs> Um, but that is the way that we choose doctors. You know, they have to have four A's at A level and A stars, and they've got to be academically brilliant and sporty and, you know, do lots of extracurricular work. Whereas I think that the population that we treat isn't like that. You know, <laughs> the population we treat are normal people from every walk of life. And so I think sometimes it is quite difficult to relate to your peers as coming into it as somebody from a non-traditional background. But I think when you're talking about the question of activism and feeling powerless, that is definitely a feeling I'm familiar with. And that's what drove me to doing this. It's one thing to play benefits and raise money, but you feel like you're not in a powerful position. You're not making decisions. And I think as somebody on the inside of it, you can actually do more to bringing the treatment to the people. And that's sort of what I do with chronic pain, because I've continued my interest in activism into chronic pain since I've been working in this job. Yeah, I think it's definitely the part of medicine that you look at and think, how do you go in and do that every day? <laughs> and see people in so much pain. But I guess, you know, those people are in pain every day. Yeah, yeah, they are. And the really nice thing about it is what you realize is that they're not coming to you for sympathy. They can get sympathy from their family and friends. They're coming to you for advice, for solutions, for practical ideas. And sometimes that is a lot around breaking bad news is saying that, there isn't something that can cure you. There isn't a magical medication. No, I don't have a different book of drugs to every other doctor. I have the same book. There's only one book. <laughs> but it's also saying, you know, you're coming to me saying you can't live with it, but you've lived with it every single day. You know, like you're seeing me for the first time today, but you've been living with this for however long. So it shows you can live with it. You know, it's just living the life you want with it, as opposed to kind of feeling held back and feeling like you will make yourself worse if you do something. So a lot of it is around empowering people, reassuring them, um, helping them to accept something that's really hard to accept. I mean, being in pain every day, it's not an easy thing to accept. But, you know, if you have no choice, you know, <laughs> then it's a question of, well, okay, this is a life that I want to have. So how do I have that life, despite the fact that I have this chronic illness? And chronic pain is a chronic illness. I think chronic pain is one of those conditions where we can never truly understand it unless we experience it. And especially because there's not often a way to treat it easily. 
And I suppose that moves us on nicely to the topic of today's episode, which is clinical trials, because you've overseen a number of clinical trials on chronic pain treatments over the years. Yeah. So I started off actually doing trials on chronic pain procedures. So coming from an anesthetic background, we are quite handy with our nerve blocks. So initially, I was very, very lucky to have a mentor when I started this job, who was a very prestigious researcher in the field. He was looking at the field of something called ion channels, which are ways in which nerves transmit information. And he's one of the people who helped to define a circuitry in the spinal cord, which is how we sense um, pain. It's called the AMPA circuit. So he worked on something called the AMPA receptor. It's part of the way that pain transmission gets from areas of injury into the brain. And um, he was very interested in clinical trials and extremely supportive of this very green, quite new person coming into it who was curious and I really wanted to help patients in whatever way I could, and whether that was with injections, nerve blocks, or medicines, it just felt like something I could do to be useful. Anyway, we started off doing a technique called pulsed radio frequency to the nerve roots, to the dorsal root ganglion. So essentially, nerves are like the wiring between the brain and the body, except it's more like a telephone in, in the sense that there's communication which goes in both directions. If there's a part of the body that's chronically painful, it tends to set up a rather um, angry, active circuit in that area. So the brain gets very interested in that part of the body. And there's a lot of nerve transmission going on in a structure called the dorsal root ganglion. Basically, with pulsed radio frequency, what you do is you kind of zap that little bit of nerve tissue very, very quickly with um, a pulse that turns on and off about 500 times a second. And that sort of stuns the nerve into silence. <laughs> and that can be lasting for a variable amount of time, sometimes just a couple of hours, or sometimes the results can be pretty dramatic and the pain relief can last for years. So what we want to do in a clinical trial is we want to make sure, number one, the technique is safe. Number two, that the technique is reproducible. In other words, that you can do it in more than one patient and get success. And three, that the technique is got applicability to whatever population you want to use it in. So if you're only testing it in 20-year-old white men, you know the technique works in 20-year-old white men, but does it work in 85-year-old elderly women with osteoporosis? You know, So you really want to make sure you have a spread of people when you're doing a clinical trial. So I started off doing pulsed radio frequency, which, you know, as most researchers will tell you, um, your first few trials are disappointing. <laughs> you try and recruit enough participants. You never, it's not easy to recruit patients because it's an experimental treatment. Um, sometimes the patients don't meet all of the entry criteria that you set up for yourself because you really just want to test one thing, which is the investigation that you're doing. If you start getting people who are trying different things, trying different medicines, you're never sure that the technique that you're using is responsible for the improvement. Improvement. So, you know, life is complicated for people. <laughs> so even if they're in a clinical trial, life still goes on. They have other conditions. They may change their medication. They may move away. So recruitment is difficult. And then analyzing the results is also difficult because you have to use an outcome measure, which you can analyze, which is what they call valid. So you make sure that the result that you're seeing is because of the thing that you're doing and that it's also um, something which you can actually analyze properly. So saying, did it work? Yes. <laughs> is it really as, as good as saying, did it work on a scale of one to 10? And let's translate that scale into some statistics and then look back with some complicated uh, the analysis of variance and so on. So without boring your listeners too much, 
<laughs> suffice to say, the pulse radio frequency trial didn't quite go as we planned. <laughs> but then uh, luckily I was, I kind of got the bug. So I was approached by a couple of drug companies who were testing some new molecules. And one of them was a company that was making a cannabis extract called Sativex. So um, I had a friend who was a pain consultant up in Norfolk. And he said, so this company are recruiting for principal investigators who have an interest in chronic pain, but it's a cannabis-based drug. So how do you feel about that? And I said, well, I don't care. You know, <laughs> it doesn't bother me. And he said, well, some people have really strong feelings about working with cannabis. They don't want to. And I said, well, not exactly working with cannabis as a clinical trial. So it was official and they were the sponsors. And um, I think our center recruited more than any other center in the country, which I'm pretty proud of. So yeah, you've come through medical and you've done that. And now, so your role with Sativex was as a principal investigator. That's right. Do you want to talk a bit about what a principal investigator is, what they do? So you have um, different levels of investigation in any clinical trial, and you have somebody who oversees the whole of the clinical trial for whatever region that trial is happening in. So you might have, say, a a site investigator who's just in charge of one little clinical trial site, or you might have a principal investigator who's in charge of a couple of different sites. And then you would have an overall lead investigator who's in charge of the whole region. And that could be all of Europe, or it could be all of the UK, or if it's in the United States, it could be the Eastern Seaboard or the West Coast. So I was responsible for this particular site in the East of England. So I was referred patients from, say, a hundred mile radius around my particular clinical base. And the sponsor, who's the company that make the drug, they have to go through a number of different regulatory frameworks. So they have to make sure that they know what the action of the medication is, so they know what its action is on the body. They have to make some trials to see how it works. In other words, how it's absorbed, how quickly it's absorbed, what routes it's absorbed by. Can you give it by mouth? Do you have to give it by injection and so on? And then they look at uh, healthy volunteers to see how toxic it is. And unfortunately, some trials just stop there. <laughs> yeah. um, and then some trials stop because the molecule is very difficult to administer. In this case, we were looking at a cloned single plant, which was a cannabis sativa, and every different generation of that plant was genetically identical because they were all grown from a cloned plant. But they also had this thing called the entourage effect, which means that you had a variety of different molecules. You didn't just have one particular molecule. So for them, getting approval to test this in humans was quite difficult because usually you're only testing one molecule. But because they had this genetically identical clone and because there wasn't a massive variation in the amount of the different chemicals that were in it from generation to generation, they were able to get a license. They were also using a concept of something called an orphan drug. So orphan drugs are drugs that are developed for unusual or rare conditions. So if you have, say, an unmet need, like, like say, the children who have the really terrible intractable epilepsy, and they have gotten approval to use cannabidiol for that, that would be considered a sort of difficult condition with not many people affected by that condition, and therefore you would be able to get rapid approval for something called an orphan drug. So these are drugs for rare conditions. So I believe, I mean, I might be wrong about this, but I believe that one of the ways that Sativex was able to be approved for human use was that it was kind of existing in this kind of orphan world. So um, we talk about clinical trials as having five phases. So we go 
for initially the first phase, which is what we call the preclinical phase. That's really just looking at whatever the intervention is, whether it's a molecule or whether it's a compound or something, and looking at it either in tissue culture or in an animal model. It's interesting with animal models because there's a lot of ethical issues. So human tissue culture is probably the best way of analyzing a molecule, but that also comes with ethical issues. And I'm sure all your listeners will be familiar with Henrietta Lacks and the story of the Heloc clones. So preclinical is how we start, and we look at the mechanism of action of whatever we're looking at, uh, whether it's toxic. We look at something called the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of that molecule, so how quickly it's absorbed, how it behaves, how the body gets rid of it. Then we get into a phase one trial, and this is basically a trial where you take healthy volunteers. They're often graduate students or medical students, and in some countries, phase one volunteers are paid for their work, and in some, they just do it altruistically. And what you do is you get anywhere from five to 10 to 20, sometimes up to 100 participants. You put them into controlled conditions with lots of extra safety, <laughs> you know, resuscitation equipment, and intensive care and everything else. And you basically give them the drug, and then you take blood samples at different intervals to see how that drug is being absorbed into the body and how it's working, and also keeping an eye on your participants to make sure that that nothing happens to them. So that's your phase one. So if you get through phase zero and phase one, you can then go into phase two. And we're getting bigger every time. So we're going from you know very small numbers to slightly bigger numbers to much bigger numbers. In phase two, what you're doing is you're looking at the drug working in your target audience. So let's say you might take 100 patients with chronic pain and try this compound in them. And you will be doing the same thing as you did in the phase one. You'll be observing them closely. You'll be observing them under controlled conditions. You're making sure that they don't have any toxic effects or any unintended consequences. And then you're going to be writing up that trial and saying, well, this works. This is what we call a proof of concept. So this is saying, we have decided that this compound is useful in this condition. We have tested it in a phase two and we think that it is useful. And so our next phase will be to set up a phase three or what we would now call a double-blind randomized controlled trial. And that's phase three. So in phase three, that's when you really start to struggle. <laughs> you're having to go out and find all the people who have this condition who don't mind being trial participants. And then you're going to look at hundreds and thousands in multiple different parallel trials across lots of different areas. And you're going to get patients who are either going to get the active drug because phase two, it's all the active drug. And in phase three, they're either going to get the active drug or they're going to get a placebo. And again, you're going to do some amount of sampling and some amount of observation, but not as invasive as it is in phase two. So these are not people who have to be hooked up to a laboratory with an IV going and having blood samples every five minutes. <laughs> these are people who are you know, they're going to be living their lives and kind of calling in once a week to the trial to tell us how they're getting on. And then after that, we then go into what's called the application process. And that's when you submit your application to whatever regulatory body you're in, whether it's the Food and Drug Administration in America, the European Medicines Agency, which we used to be part of until Brexit, <laughs> or the MHRA. And then you would look for approval. And then you would continue doing studies um, in what was called uh, post-marketing studies. And this is basically ongoing surveillance of people who are taking the medicine for a particular condition. And what will then be happening is they'll be using something called the yellow card scheme to notify the MHRA in this country of any unexpected side effects. And so that's what we call post-marketing surveillance. So I got involved in the phase three trials initially, which in terms of clinical trials, you basically have hundreds to thousands of patients and what you're looking at is safety and efficacy. So sometimes you're looking at a dose finding study or you're looking at tolerability. So how tolerable is this? 
compound in humans, whether there are any suspected unexpected reactions to it, any anaphylaxis or, you know, things that you couldn't predict really. So you're not really at that stage looking too much at how the drug works for the condition, but more in terms of safety and doses and, and that kind of, you know, the range in which you would use it in humans. And then you go on and you do the phase fours to see whether it works. <laughs> yeah. The important part, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think my understanding of, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four, mm-hmm. it took me a long time, even when I was doing my, you know, undergraduate and reading research from it to realize that phase three isn't one trial. It's multiple trials that all fall within that banner, right? Yes, exactly. So we talked a little bit at the beginning about reproducibility. So that's the fact that the whatever intervention you're doing, whether it's a drug, an operation, or an injection, that that works over several different you know groups of people in different areas of the country. So if my trial had been successful in East Anglia, all I could say is that participants, male and female, between the ages of 20 and 60, who are from East Anglia, <laughs> that the drug works really well in them. But that wouldn't necessarily tell us something about, I don't know, um, people of Asian origin from Birmingham, for example, or, you know, old people from the southwest of the country. So what you want to do is have the biggest range of participants. And so you can be sure that what you're observing is actually a proper effect of the drug. Yes, I can see it's so important that you you need to get the right data from these trials. And that comes from the number of patients. I guess we should also talk about the timescales as well, because these are lengthy processes. Yes, <laughs> it takes a long time. It's very expensive. <laughs> Yeah, incredibly long timescales. Do you remember how long your phase three trial ran? It ran for years. Um, We ran, usually what happens is at the very beginning of any trial design, you have to ask a statistician what number of participants they would expect for you to be able to be sure that what you're observing is an effect of the drug as opposed to just happening by chance. So we talk about alpha to alpha errors and beta errors. So the statistician sits down and scratches their head and does some mathematical witchcraft, of which I have absolutely no idea what they do, but they come up with a number (laughs) and they say, right, you need to have this many participants in a random double-blinded trial where the patients are allocated randomly to either the active drug or some kind of placebo. And we need to recruit this many people and we need to have complete um, start to finish analysis for each patient for every single part of that trial. But as I said before, people are complex. (laughs) Um, They they die, (laughs) they move away, (laughs) they have life events, they get pregnant, you know. So, you know, sometimes these trials may take two or three years and you have to make sure that for whatever the patient's participation in that trial is, that they agree to abide by the rules of that trial. And that isn't, you know, that isn't always possible for people. So sometimes they drop out and then that makes the statistics difficult. Because then you have to figure out how you treat those people who dropped out of the trial. Did they drop out because it wasn't effective or did they drop out for another reason? So we had a big problem in that trial, which we can talk about later if you want. It's called a super placebo effect. (laughs) Ooh, yeah, that sounds so interesting. Because I know there's a lot of words like placebo, random, blind that you used kind of in the mainstream, but also have very technical meanings in trials. So can you talk a bit about those? Maybe placebo and super placebo is a good place to start. So um, placebo, we use it in common scientific parlance to mean an inactive substance. 
So whereas your drug is what's called an active substance or your treatment is an active treatment, let's say you were trying to design a trial to see whether acupuncture worked. So one arm of your trial would be patients having acupuncture. So what would you do with the patients who you wanted to have sham acupuncture with? So you might just put a little acupuncture tube on them and then just tap them with a toothpick instead of a needle. So, <laughs> you know, it's it's that kind of thing where a placebo should be as similar to the drug as, as is possible but without the effect of that drug. And that's where you run into problems because if you believe that acupuncture works, for example, and you tap somebody with a toothpick, well, are you stimulating an acupressure point? I mean, you know, is it really a placebo is the question. So I think placebos, there's still a bit of an incomplete understanding about what a placebo actually is. We know that if you give patients sugar pills, they get an effect. So what is causing that effect? It's obviously something in their own brain which they're using to change their physiology because humans can change their physiology with their brains. We know that we can make our hearts go faster and slower. We can, you know, we can raise our blood pressure and lower our blood pressure. If we're trained, if we're athletes, we can, you know, get into a particular sort of zone where we gate our pain from running a marathon and so on. So what is actually happening when you give somebody a placebo? They think they're getting a drug. So there must be something going on in their brain to make that, you know, to do some kind of reaction. So sometimes you'll get a very interesting observation during a trial where a patient will take a placebo, but they'll get all kinds of side effects. And then when you sort of unblind them, you'll say, but you were on the placebo. <laughs> so why are you getting all these side effects? Well, because sometimes the brain is a very powerful thing that we don't always understand. And in our trial, unfortunately, what we did was we have this compound and it was suspended in a uh, carrier mixture of thymol, which is a preservative, and alcohol, which is also a preservative. And we said to the patients, well, you know, you can take up to 24 sprays a day, you know, one spray an hour. And um, 24 sprays of alcohol <laughs> might have made the patients a little drunk. <laughs> So we were finding that in the active drug group, patients were using somewhere between maybe four and six sprays of the substance a day and reporting some kind of an effect. In the placebo group, they were using 12 sprays a day, 16 sprays a day, but also reporting an effect. <laughs> so were they getting drunk? I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to know. And then we used something called... Um, a randomized controlled trial. So it was allocated by a random number generator. If they got an odd number, they got a placebo. If they got an even number, they got an active drug. I wasn't allowed to see what number they got. Uh, none of the investigator team were able to see. So we had a separate team that were analyzing the results. They were able to see, you know, the, um, the team that was doing the analysis wasn't able to see which ones were placebo, but the sponsor was. So all of us were blinded. But yes, it was it was pretty clear, which very quickly it became clear who was in the placebo group and who wasn't, because a lot of our patients who were trying this cannabis-based drug were saying, I can't work. You know, I can't drive a car. I'm too confused. <laughs> Just, I feel really hungry. <laughs> so um, it was, yeah, a lot of them dropped out of the trial. So it kind of, then we had the problem of what do we do with those patients after they drop out? So how do we analyze those patients? And do we say that they dropped out because the side effects were intolerable or because the drug wasn't effective? The sad thing was that the drug was effective for them. They did say that their pain was better, but unfortunately they just didn't like the way that it made them feel. But then, you know, a lot of drugs that are used to treat chronic pain, patients don't like the way it makes them feel. Morphine is a perfect example. Lots of patients don't like the way morphine makes them feel. I guess that's the interesting part of a clinical trial, especially at phase three, is you can't, as much as you can say, yes, it's effective, yeah. if it's effective, but no one wants to take it. Yes. 
Exactly. Like, let's say you had the most effective drug for pain in the world, but it made all your hair fall out. Well, you could say, well, that's cosmetic, but you could wear a wig. But, you know, patients might say, actually, I don't mind being in pain, but I, I, I like my hair. <laughs> um, so you, you really have to balance acceptability and tolerability. And sometimes that isn't always like a very hard scientific thing to define. You know, sometimes it's patient preference. And this is where co-production comes in. So co-production of trials, I guess that's kind of focusing on how patients can be involved in designing the clinical trials, right? So what are the main goals or the primary endpoints and the secondary endpoints, but also really, you know, getting involved with the wider community and having, letting people have a say in the clinical trials. Is that the idea? Absolutely. Because your patients have to tell you what their goals are. You know, some people might, their goal might be to be 100% pain-free, but for somebody who has lived with chronic pain for a number of years, that's not achievable. So for them, it might be, I'd like to be able to go sit in a restaurant and have a meal, or I'd like to be able to do a car journey to visit my grandchildren. So you really have to take into consideration what the patient's goals are at the, you know, starting a trial. So somebody having the most effective cannabis-based medicine in the world who can't go to work, can't drive a car, can't remember what they went into a shop for, <laughs> that drug is not going to be helpful for them. And so, you know, it's not only the effect of the drug, but it's also how you record their reactions to it that's also important. So um, I know I'm jumping on a bit here, but let's say you set up a trial and the easiest thing in the world would be for patients to use their mobile phones and complete an online a smartphone questionnaire, like a, I don't know, something like a survey monkey. Well, that might be great for people who have a smartphone, but what if you don't have one? Or what if you don't have reception? Or what if you're elderly and you can't see the phone? Or you've got arthritis and you find it hard to use a touchscreen? So co-production brings in this idea that, you know, you're not going to eliminate patients from the trial process on the basis of their particular restrictions. So you want to make sure that your information gathering, that the method in which you use to gather information is suitable for that group and suitable for as wide a group as possible. Because what you're after is the widest participation possible. And do you think that, I mean, I think that the idea of co-production is incredible because it, it allows people to access the healthcare and shape the healthcare that they need. Do you think that's something specifically important within chronic pain? Absolutely. Because I think the trouble with chronic pain is you're suffering from two things. You're suffering from pain, which is horrible, but you're also suffering from a credibility gap because there isn't a blood test for pain. So if you go to your doctor every week and say, my pain is terrible and I can't sleep and I can't do anything, I can't pick up my kids and you know I, I find it hard to do anything, housework, dressing myself. And the doctor says, but you look fine. <laughs> There's nothing on your scans, nothing on your blood tests. You know, your ultrasound is normal. Your x-ray is normal. You know, are you making this up? So coming into a pain clinic where they're actually believed and where somebody says, no, 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 that's that's entirely normal. People with neuropathic pain don't have any changes on their scans. And yeah, maybe someday we'll invent a scan where we can see pain, but right now we, we can't. You know, we just have to accept that. We have to kind of accept the patient's word for it. And I think the most common question that I get asked when I'm, I'm lecturing, because I do lecture medical students and doctors and nurses and physios, is they say, how can you tell if a patient really has pain or not? I, I'm like, well, what kind of a question is that? <laughs> You know, that's a very silly question. Why would somebody be wasting their own time and mine and their GPs and everyone else's constantly seeking some kind of treatment for something which is entirely with making up, you know, like they would have to be pretty dedicated. <laughs> you know, it's, 
and to undergo multiple different investigations, some of which are pretty uncomfortable. I don't know if you've ever laid in an MRI scanner, but it's not the nicest experience. And to undergo multiple investigations, you know, they think that something is really wrong with them because uh, pain is a powerful symbol and it, it tells you something's terribly wrong, except when it doesn't tell you that something's wrong because neuropathic pain is more of a dysfunction of the nervous system rather than a piece of you going wrong, if that makes sense. So trying to help patients understand that is is pretty interesting. But I think going back to your question, it's it's really hard for patients with pain to describe what life is like for them. So I think that there's a very powerful story in the patient's history, which needs to be told. And part of co-production for me with chronic pain is allowing patients the space to tell that story and to make sure that that story is respected when you're trying to design some kind of an intervention for them. And do you find, I mean, I think really from my degree, I get quite a horrible picture of health communication. We very rarely look at where health communication goes right. We tend to look at where it goes wrong. Yeah which learning-wise is quite useful, but it doesn't paint a particularly positive picture. So do you find that patients respond and and are excited by the idea of co-production? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of them are scared because they think it's a big responsibility. And, you know, they say, well, this works for me, but how do I know if it's going to work for everyone else? And all of a sudden you're kind of putting them into a position where they've got a bit of power. And, you know, we as doctors, we're used to having the power. (laughs) You know, like we're trained our whole lives to have power. (laughs) And, you know, the same for scientists, you know, you put on a white coat or a lab coat and everyone's like, oh, oh, respect your authority, you know, (laughs) whereas here you are, you're a patient coming into the room with all these important people with strings of degrees and letters after their name and intimidating language and jargon and white coats. And they feel quite, you know, like, what am I doing in this room? So I think one of the things that I always tell my students and my trainees is leave space leave space for them. Let them talk about things in their own words. Think about the words that you're using. Make sure you're not using jargon. You may notice that I try not to use too many quote unquote scientific terms. Use plain language. Use open questions. So what you're talking about, yes, we all know what goes wrong when you cut across people, interrupt them, don't let them finish a sentence. I find that my consultations take a lot shorter if I let the patient speak. If I don't interrupt them, the only time I'll ever interrupt them is to just clarify something if I don't understand what they've said. But usually what I'll do is I'll let them tell their story and then I'll summarize it and say, so what I'm hearing is this, is this correct? And then we can move on from there once we've established some trust. So they know I'm listening to them and they know that I'm respecting their story. And then I will send them a letter, a copy of our consultation so they can actually correct it if they don't think it's right. So they can come back to me and say, actually, you know, you got that wrong. It's my right foot, not my left foot. Or, you know, actually, no, I was married when I was 18, not 25. You know? <laughs> so, but, you know, it's important to, to let them have some ownership in it. And I think that that's a kind of a scary place to be if you're a healthcare professional who's used to being, you know, you're used to having the last word and you're used to being in position of authority. And, you know, you're not used to allowing people to have the space because you feel like there's not enough time. You've got to get through the consultation and get on to the next patient. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's fascinating. And that whole power dynamic is just, yeah, I think it's bizarre. I also find it bizarre that I know a lot about science and medicine, but if I'm in a doctor's office, I like throw my hands up and go, this is not my position. (laughs) Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Even though I could go and read the clinical trials of the drug that they want me to take and understand it. I think that, yeah, the idea of co-production and being able to say, no, this is is my health and I want to be part of it is, is incredible. 
it's also pretty intimidating because I mean, I've been, I was a patient long before I was ever a doctor. You know, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease when I was 22. And it took many years of me going back to the doctor and going, why is this happening to my body? And them saying, oh, it's stress. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's because you're on tour all the time. You know, oh, you know, <laughs> you're too skinny. You're too fat. You're too this, you know. And it's like, if only they'd have said, okay, we'll listen to your entire story of everything that's happening to you. And we'll put together you know, your bowel problems and your joint pain and these funny little lumps that are coming up on your legs. And we'll put that all together and say, oh, this sounds like Crohn's disease. But instead, you know, it was two years of 10 minute consultations and walking out with a referral to stress management or <laughs> to, to an exercise class or something. So there was a tremendous delay in kind of getting diagnosed. And I think a lot of that, I hope a lot of that is changing with the way in which we're encouraging people to use their own curiosity and to bring their experience as people into the room with patients as opposed to just sitting there as a doctor playing a role. And I think one of the um, encouraging things that I'm seeing is opening access to medicine to people from untraditional backgrounds. So I'm hoping that the medical workforce in years to come will look more like the people that they're treating and less like, you know... <laughs> dead white men. <laughs> yeah, I can see the picture of, of the doctor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a lovely place to end it. But really quickly, I just wanted to ask, so co-production is becoming more common, but do you, what, what do you see the future of clinical trials being? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I think, I think that many of the easy quick wins in clinical trials are kind of already there. And so what we're looking at now is things that are much, much more difficult. So we're looking either at orphan conditions where there's so few people that doing a trial would mean recruiting people from all over the world because, you know, we're getting the diagnostic kind of, you know, uh, funnel is getting narrower. You know, the, the easy pickings, we've kind of picked them off the top already. We're now looking at things that are not really amenable to treatment with a single molecule. So the things that are going to affect us in the future, like obesity, for example, like diabetes, these are really complex conditions and they don't always have one cause and they don't always have one treatment. So I think the future is going to be looking at what I think what used to be called big data and trying to figure out what interventions on a population basis will be useful to try in people but I don't think that we're going to be able to come up with one intervention that's going to fit everybody. So what we're going to have to look at is much more individualized, a design called N equals one trials. Do you know what that is? I don't think so. So an N equals one trial is basically where you have a patient, they try something that doesn't work. So then they then try something else, but you only change one thing each time, but you're doing a sequential trial in the same person of a number of different interventions. And at the end of that, you will say, okay, these interventions work or these are synergistic and they work together. That's very much more complex to analyze statistically. But I think that that's what's coming. <laughs> sadly, I'm not a statistician. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't know so, that sadly. Yes. But... <laughs> so up to someone else to work out how to do the math. <laughs> yeah, yeah. we'll have the big ideas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm happy with that. I'll have the idea someone else can do the math. I'm really not good at math at all. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. I've I've really enjoyed it. It's been really fun. And I'm so pleased that we're making this accessible to a group of people that probably wouldn't ever hear about this stuff any other way. So 
A massive thank you to Marcia for taking the time to speak to us today. In the show notes, I've included some links to further information on clinical trials, but we'll also be staying on clinical trials for our next episode of What Science, focusing on inclusivity and diversity. I have to admit, this episode has been especially stressful for me because my laptop decided to die in the middle of editing. So I have to say a massive thank you to Harvey the Computer Repairman for recovering this audio file and Susan for lending me her computer to get this finished. I'd be lost without you! For now, make sure you're following us on socials and tune in next week for Susan's episode of Is That Science? Thanks for listening!